Since 1929, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences have awarded what they call the best in their industry. These are called the Oscars, given out once a year, given to actors or directors or movies that receive great critical reviews, unrelated to their popularity at the box office. In 2008, uh, one example was the film that won Best Picture, Hurt Locker, uh, won Best Picture even though it lost money at the box office. So in 1975, uh, CBS developed what are called the People's Choice Awards, claiming to be the only award show with prizes selected by we, the people. The People's Choice favors films and individuals that do not necessarily win critical acclaim, but are popular. It's kind of like the Applebee's of film awards. So people like Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston, all won People's Choice Awards while never winning an Oscar. As we go into chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we're going to get a peek behind the curtain of the drama of the book of Samuel, and we're going to look at the people's choice for their king. Now, in chapter 8 itself, not much actually happens but it is one of the most significant, historically significant chapters in the Old Testament. It marks the pivot in the history of Israel. It marks the pivot in leadership from the judges to the kings. Uh, when I think about sometimes chapters and, and, and sections of scripture, to use a, an analogy of baseball, there are in the Bible texts that I call, that I consider home run texts. And then there are the texts that get on base. We just came off a home run text in chapters 4 through 7, that whole showdown between the ark God, Yahweh, and the ark, and the false god, Dagon, and the Philistines. It was dramatic, it was moving, it was funny. The hero wins in the end. It was suspenseful. We had cliffhanger endings. And it foreshadowed the gospel so clearly to us. As we come to chapter 8, and actually for the next seven chapters, chapter 8 through 14, they're like getting runners on base. They're the table setters. It's not to say that they're unimportant chapters. They're extremely important. In, in baseball, you have your table setters, those guys who hit 350, have an on-base percentage of 380, 390, 400 because they're walking and they're hitting singles and they're stealing bases, and they set the table for the heavy hitters. Well, these next seven chapters are the table setters that are preparing us for the heavy hitter King David to come in chapter 15. This chapter, chapter 8, contains the decisive moment when God determines the future of his covenant nation. It marks the beginning of Israel's bittersweet, but honestly, mostly bitter, almost all bitter, romance that they have with a king. Chapter 8 is a transitional chapter. It's both historically transitional and going from judges to king, but also from the literary perspective. It pivots. The story of Samuel, which has dominated the first uh, seven chapters, will pivot to the story of Saul for the next seven chapters. 
Sometimes in a play, if you've been to a play, you, there are transitional scenes and they come out in front of the curtain. The curtain closes and the actors come out in front of the curtain. There's a scene that occurs in front of the curtain. Meanwhile, behind the curtain, there's this whole scenery change that's going on. Chapter 8 is like that. The narrator of chapter 8 is just basically reporting the facts. There's a lot of disagreement in the commentaries as to the motivation of the people. Were the people right or wrong to desire a king? Uh, what about Samuel's resistance to obey God and to give the people a king? The narrator really doesn't assess whether the activity that's going on is good or bad. He just reports it. And that's what we're going to try to do as we unpack this chapter today. We're going to try to understand, is Israel's desire for a king good? Is Samuel's resistance to finding a king good or bad? This transition that's going on in the nation from judge to king, is it God's blessing or is it God's curse? So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading the end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. I'll read up to verse 3 of chapter 8, but the exposition is actually going to take us into the beginning of chapter 9. But I'll begin by reading 1 Samuel 7:15 through 8:3. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I'll begin with a reminder of the context uh, that that we're in. Where are we in the drama of First Samuel? Uh, recall that the Ark of the Covenant is back under Israel's control. Remember, in chapter four, it was captured and taken away. Chapter five is a showdown with Dagon. Chapter six, that whole unusual story how the Ark came back. But God showed the Israelites that things were not going to return to business as usual. His holy presence. That which before the ark was taken away, before the ark was captured, his holy presence was treated as common. The people were steeped in sin and idolatry. Even the priests were committing abominations right in the holy place. And the loss of the ark was actually a consequence for their sins. But when the ark returned to Israel's control, God would not allow that darkness to continue unchecked. Remember how the people of Beth Shemesh last time celebrated when the ark came back into the camp. But then they treated the ark as common by looking into the ark. And God reminded them of his holiness in a very sobering manner. And it prompted them to ask that question, which we said was a good question to ask. Who is able to stand before the Lord? In the Bible, we know that none but the high priest could stand before God. We're going to see when we get to 2 Samuel 6, which we'll, uh, we're going to see King David is the next person to actually see the ark. And he danced before the ark. That's when they brought the ark into, into Jerusalem. 
But for now, the ark is being safeguarded by the priests. And remember that while that was going on, Israel was going through a revival. A revival that was marked by prayer and repentance. It resulted in peace and restoration. They heeded Samuel's command. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Samuel commanded them, he said, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. If you're returning, serve God, put away the foreign gods and serve him only. And then in verse 4, we learn that Israel did obey and they put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. But two things I want to point out in this command, in this command of Samuel from verse 3. Notice it says, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart. Returning is an imperfect verb form. It doesn't refer to a single punctiliar action, but an ongoing, it underscores the present tense or the ongoing nature of repentance. So like our Christian faith is continual and ongoing, the Israelites' repentance could not be a one-time event. We could say, amen, hallelujah, they put away their foreign gods. But did they continually do this? Did they continually direct their hearts to the Lord and serve Him only? See, the Israelites did respond well by putting away their false gods. But did they continue to serve Yahweh only? Chapter 8 is going to show us how they stopped serving Yahweh only. Because serve Yahweh only doesn't only refer to false gods, but also serving a human being, in this case a king. They wanted a king, quote, verse 20, they wanted a king to go out before us and fight our battles. Now wait a minute. I want a king who's going to fight my battles. Had they forgotten that Yahweh just did that for them by conquering Dagon, by single-handedly defeating the Philistines, putting them in a, in a frenzy and chasing them out? Did they forgot that God did that all by himself? In chapter 7, they witnessed an overwhelming victory where God fought for them and there was no king. It was only an intercessor, Samuel, praying. And here they turned around in chapter 8, and it's like they didn't learn their lesson. What they did with the ark, they're doing again. What are they doing? They're trusting in some physical provision for their security. In chapter 4, it's the ark is among us. We're going to win. Now in chapter 8, set a king over us so that we can win. Each is a substitute for Yahweh. Well, some time passes, and Samuel judged Israel, and he judged Israel well, it's assumed. And while in the position of judge is not the same as a king, he was very much king-like. It says that he judged all Israel. Judges tended to be uh, regional. They judged specific areas or, or tribes or groups of tribes. But here, Samuel is judging all Israel. And also we gather that Samuel raised up his sons, Joel and Abijah, to try to succeed him. But this was not God's pattern, according to the judges of Israel. See, unlike priests and unlike kings that were going to come in the future, judges had no lineage, had no heritage. 
Uh, to be a judge, there you didn't. It had nothing to do. It was God's appointment. It was God's choice. So judges were not kings in two ways. One, their rule was limited to tribal, regional leadership. And two, there was no succession. Uh, we see this, for example, in Gideon in Judges chapter 8. When Gideon has this great victory, the people of Israel say, Gideon, rule over us. Not only you, but your sons and your grandsons. And Gideon says to them uh, in verse 23 of chapter 8, he says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that's how judges worked, whether it was Othniel or Gideon or Jair or Jephthah, Eli or Samuel. It was God's choice unrelated to the earthly lineage. So Samuel was wrong to presume that his sons could just take over as judge. When he grew old, his perspective was more along the lines of a king. But as it turned out, his sons were not qualified. We learn in verse 3 that they turned aside, chapter 8, they turned aside after gain, they took bribes, they perverted justice. It's been suggested, though, that Samuel's desire to establish his own dynasty with his sons may have whetted the appetite of the Israelites to want a true king. Look at verse 4, 4 and 5, chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, was this request for a king good or bad? I think if you just read chapter 8, you're going to assume that it was never God's will for his people to have a king. Where did this expectation come from for a king? Well, it turns out that this is from God's word. It was from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's law. We see the concept of a king-like figure in seed form all the way back at the Genesis 3.15, where this king-like figure called the seed of the woman crushes the head Of the serpent. We see it in Genesis 12, around the 11 and 12. Abraham in Canaan is very much king like in the way that he acts. And then the unquestionable expectation for a king in Genesis 49, when Jacob is prophesying over his 12 sons, in verse 10, as he comes to his fourth son, Judah, he says these words to Judah. He says, The scepter. The kingly scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so from that time on, there was this expectation on the part of the people looking at the tribe of Judah for a messianic king to come. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. We're seeing this expectation for the people that they would have a king. Right in the Torah, God gives them. Here is the clearest prophecy, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, the clearest prophecy that his kingdom would one day be ruled by a king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, 
and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. So God's giving permission in verse 50. You may indeed set a king over you for whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king. And then he gives the qualifications in the middle of verse 15. What is this king to be like? You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Uh, Only, verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Uh, Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne, this is what he ought to be occupied with, this king, God's choice. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life. Well, he should meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. That's God's king. By keeping all the words of the law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So you see this idea For God's people to have a king was not the people's invention. It is rooted in their history. It's rooted in their expectation based on God's word. So we might ask then, why does Samuel react as he does? Look at verse 6, Samuel's reaction. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. See, while it's not wrong for them to want a king, something's wrong here because Samuel's picking up on it. Where in their asking of Samuel for a king here is there any concern for the will of God or for the kingdom of God? What if it was not God's will at this time for them? There's nowhere in their request. What do we see in their request? We want to be like the nations. We want to be like the Gentiles. Look down at verse 20. We want a king, what? To fight our battles for us. So their desire for a king was actually selfish. And it was based on an unholy desire to be like the nations. I I would tend to believe that if the people were appealing to Samuel on the basis of God's word, on the basis of Deuteronomy 17, and in humility saying, Samuel, we need a king after God's heart. We need the one who God chooses for us. Can we hold a prayer meeting and pray that God would bring this king to us? And, And you know what, Samuel, we're willing to wait until God raises up that man. I think then Samuel may have been more likely to accept the request. In fact, if you peek behind the curtain over in the wing, in Bethlehem, unknown to anyone at this time, there was this 10-year-old boy who is the son of a shepherd by the name of Jesse, who was in the tribe of Judah, who would be God's choice for king. Had the people waited, they could have saved themselves considerable heartache. But that's not what the people want. They want the king and they want him now. 
They forgot what God had done for them, and they fall for an antichrist, basically. King Saul. I think King Saul is, is, a, is a type of an antichrist. He comes before the, the true king. And even the elect, if possible, are deceived by this man's physique and his supposed power. Let's pick up in verse 6. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. What's he saying? They haven't changed. They didn't learn their lesson from the heavy losses that came when the ark was captured. God is making it very clear. These are a rebellious people. They don't want to submit to his rule. They were the same as when they came out of Egypt. No change the way they rebelled against Moses when they were back in the wilderness, when they were in Egypt, when they sided with Dathan and Abiram. They haven't changed. And the people's choice for king at this moment in time was not only a social or a political desire, it was an affront to God. And God tells Samuel, they've rejected me from being king over them. Their attitude toward having a king was a reflection of their lack of faith in Yahweh. And so their short-lived season of repentance was over And this time they're not serving a false god, but they are serving a human king. And God says, let them have it. Obey the voice of the people. Again in verse 9. Now then, verse 9, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. It's like God saying, you know what, they're going to want this, but still give them the warning. And that's exactly what Samuel does. And he does, and he warns them in dramatic fashion in verses 10 to 17. Notice as I read this in 10 to 17, how many times the words, he will take, are repeated. This is the, this is the one characteristic of the king. He will take. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these are the ways the king will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys uh, and put them uh, to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. He will take six times. He will take. 
God is saying in no uncertain terms, this guy is who you want. The consequence of your sin is that you are going to get what you want. I'm giving you what you want. And then he seals it, as we'll see in chapter 9, with this man named Shaul, which means asked for, King Saul. Remember, we saw his name kind of foreshadowed back in chapter 1 when the baron Hannah asked for a son. Same root of the word of Shaul, the one asked for. And here God answers the people of Israel by giving them what they asked for. And as a consequence of rejecting him, the Lord says, I will not answer you in that day. When you cry out because this king is oppressing you and making you his slaves, I will not answer you. Verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Uh, just interesting, they, they say judge us, and the, the word there is mishpat, which is the same word that we use for judgment in the sense of God's wrath. Little do they know what they're saying. They spurn the counsel of Samuel. And who's Samuel? Only their judge, only their prophet. He's already proven himself. And he gives this stern caution. He will take, 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 he will take. But the people prevail. Their wishes prevail to serve a king. Verses 21 and 22. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. It's like, Lord, he comes back. Come on, give me one more chance here. And the Lord says, obey the voice of the people. And in case I didn't make it clear, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. God reiterates to Samuel the prophet. He's stubborn. It's the third time that God told him, obey their voice. Verse 7, get a king. Verse 9, obey the voice of the people. And here again, obviously, though, Samuel's uncomfortable with this. Why would Samuel be uncomfortable? Why is Samuel not obeying God immediately here? Well, one reason could be that he knows that this is judgment for his people. He knows that having a king will be judgment. This is reiterated in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, right before the prophet Hosea goes out and tells the people and announces that Israel is going to go into exile. In Hosea 13, verses 10 and 11, God says, it's kind of he almost mocks the people's choice. He says, where now is your king? They're about to lose everything. He says, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, give me a king and princes? And I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. And maybe Samuel has a reluctance because there's a sense that God is not blessing these people. He's going to actually judge them. This is his anger in giving them a king. It's difficult to go along with a situation where you know that God is chastening a people. Isaiah, that was his calling, right? Isaiah 6, go and tell these stiff-necked people that won't listen. That, that's not an easy calling. Some suggest that Samuel himself might have had some anger 
Maybe a feeling of rejection or personal betrayal. Others say, well, this judgeship was in place for 225 years. It's been since the death of Joshua, they've had judges. 225 years, that's a long time. That's a long-standing tradition. That's longer than this nation has existed, the United States. I mean, imagine if someone were to say that the United States, we're doing away with the Constitution, and we're going to give it over to a dictatorship. But no one would ever say that, right? Whatever the case is, Samuel did resist the sovereign will of God. And God made sure there was no question. Obey the voice, verse nine, verse 7, verse 9. Now then, obey the voice. And in case there's any question, verse 22, obey their voice and make them a king. What Samuel missed, I think, is, of course, we know the whole story. He didn't. But what he doesn't fully understand is that this first king, who we're going to find out is Saul, the Benjaminite, while indeed he was the wrong king, in another sense, at the same time, something new was being formed in the nation, a monarchy. And in the person of Saul's successor, David, there would be the blessing of God on the nation. Because that successor, David, would become a foreshadow of a greater king, of the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah, David's royal son, the good shepherd, the true and better David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a king that is unlike any king of the nations. He is a king whose yoke is easy and burden is light, completely opposite from the world's kings. He is a king that takes away the burden of sin of the heavy taskmaster Satan uses to oppress us. Brethren, God has given us a benevolent king. That king died on the cross to take away our sin, the guilt, the power of sin. And he rose from the dead to reign in resurrection power and glory. And today, if you don't know this king, this benevolent king invites you to be part of his kingdom. You can't be born into it. You don't join by birthright. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust him, his cross work, his death and his resurrection. As you repent of living life the way you're used to living and instead live for him. Look, there are many other ways that you could choose. Many other ways. There are a host of religions. There's a very broad road that offers you countless choices that you could fulfill any one of your desires. But there is one way that leads to life. The narrow road. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And while he is an exclusive king, Jesus is no tyrant. His rule and reign is one of love. He conquers through loving self-sacrifice. His law brings peace. His power brings freedom. And yes, we may be considered servants or even slaves, but we are also counted as his friends. We are the friends of the master, and we serve him by the strength that he supplies. He is our gracious king. Today, if you are not a friend of Jesus, this king of kings, 
Just the fact that you are here today and that you are hearing this again is evidence of his grace and his mercy and his love. And he is offering you eternal life by conquering the grave in his resurrection. Will you not join the kingdom of this good king? As I said, there are many other options that this world offers. Many other kings that you can serve in this world. When he was looking at all the gods and all the ways and all the choices in his day, Joshua, his words apply here today. Joshua said these words. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your fathers served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, there are many choices. There are many gods that you could choose. But then he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How much better is it to serve the Lord than to serve the people's choice? He is the king of glory. Chapter 9, we're just going to read the first two verses of chapter 9 so that we get the end of the story, or at least we're going to see how the story plays out in chapter 9 and 10 next time. But we're going to see who the person is that God has in mind to be this first king. First Samuel 9, there was a man of Benjamin. Oh, alarm right there. That should be an alarm. A man of Benjamin. Benjamin, last we heard of him... Not too good. End of the book of Judges, all that stuff going on. This guy's not of Judah. People don't care. It was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Ding, ding, again, wait a minute. What did Deuteronomy say? 17 say about this king, the God's choice, he would not be rich. Verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. This is about the only good thing that I could say of this man. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I think, I think the similar word is used for Absalom later on in the story. So he's a handsome man, and what else? For his shoulders upward, he was taller, that word is Geboa, taller, than any other people. Why do I mention the word taller as being Geboa? Because that's an important word in 1 Samuel. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you remember the prayer, the song of Hannah, she sings about the proud, the arrogant, the Geboa, the tall, the mighty. Verse 2, chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord, And there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more. And maybe your version has very proudly there, but it actually says, Geboa, Geboa. And literally, it means don't multiply your words, tall, tall. See, our culture, as many cultures, lauds physical height as something important. But height is not a good thing in 1 Samuel. You know the other character, or one of the other characters, there are actually only three, we'll get to it. But uh, who are called tall, there's Saul. How about Goliath? As tall as Saul was, there's always going to be someone taller. As buffed as Saul was, he was no match for Goliath, the Philistine champion. His height meant nothing when it came up against him. 
I just love, love Hannah's song, so I want to read, read it, read through verse four and just look at how God just calls the things that, that are, are not and are not as are. Verse four, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired for themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is lonely. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. We saw him do that chapter 6 when he came against the Philistines, chapter 7. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God humbles the proud. He lays low the tall and he exalts the humble. The New Testament tells us, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up in due season. David writes about trusting in human flesh. He says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. As the hymn says, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Next time we'll come back into chapter nine and we're going to see, we're going to, God willing, do three sermons on Saul beginning in chapter nine. So to be ahead of the game, start to read nine, ten, and eleven. We're going to see his life and his time in office as king and ultimately his death and how ultimately that showed the consequence of trusting in the arm of flesh. That's another thing chapter eight does is it piques our curiosity. How is this going to happen? You have Samuel, he sends people away. How is this ever going to happen? If Samuel is not going to anoint this king, and then we're going to see that next time. I want to close by considering some application of the text. I sometimes put the application together. I thought in this case, the, the story is fresh in our minds. Now we can apply it. Chapter 8 is more than just reporting a pivotal, pivotal historical moment in the nation of Israel. God is revealing something to us about ourselves. We don't want to become so engrossed in the story that we miss the intended application. What can we learn about ourselves in chapter 8? I made a list of five things. First of all, our tendency to trust in substitutes for God. Our tendency to trust in substitutes for God. And we get what's going on here. The people see Samuel, he's getting old, they don't want to be stuck with his sons as leaders, so their answer is, let's change the government. That seems logical. But the king becomes for them a substitute. Not only a substitute of Samuel, but a substitute for Yahweh. It's kind of idolatry with a new twist. And Christians today have the same tendency. I look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the government. 
The Christian's tendency is to idolize government in our day. We want to be like the world, and we believe like the world that somehow our leaders are going to save us. Is God saying to us, okay, I'll give you what you ask for, but he will take. He will take over. He will take control. And most importantly, he will take the place of God in your trust and in even in your affections. But more than just our trust in government, this text reveals our human tendency to address problems with something physical as opposed to spiritual. We have a problem, we adjust our techniques. We adjust our practices. Instead of seeking God in prayer and repentance and faith, we deem our problems as linked to time and space. If only I can get out of this job. If only I can get out of this state. If only I can move my location or change my atmosphere or change the leader. Or if the trouble's in a church, add a smoke machine, everything will be okay. We want to be more like the world. And listen, we have a serious problem in the church today. People are talking about the de-churching of America. People are leaving churches. They're departing from the faith. How do you deal with this? Well, a generation ago, purpose-driven church philosophy told us, you you solve the problem by altering the methods, alter the procedure. Is that what is going to save us? Better music? Charismatic leadership? Listen, the solutions offered in these methods are reasonable, they're logical, they're plausible, but they are utterly godless. They fail to take into account what would God have us do. They're tantamount with the request, give us a king. We need to stop telling God what form or what style or what procedure will help and trust him, and ask him for his help. The solution to the problem is gathering together to pray, intercede for the people of God in this land and around the world. Pray to God to change the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Pray for revival. Altering techniques will not do it. Secondly, we learn, God will sometimes give us what we ask for, even at our own peril. God will sometimes give us what we ask for, even at our own peril. You know, there's that old proverb, be careful what you ask for. God granting you what you ask for is not necessarily a sign of his favor. Sometimes it's his greatest mercy to withhold, to not give us what we want. Because God knows our hearts. And because God knows our hearts, there are times in our lives when he will give us what we think will bring satisfaction, what we think will bring joy, what we think will bring happiness. And because he knows our hearts, in our hearts we'll we'll not surrender those idols so easily He will allow us a season to play with those idols in order to show us how vain and wasteful they are. I think that might be what's going on with Saul here and Israel. Because David had a tall brother. And maybe if they didn't experience this with Saul, maybe when it came time to choosing the king, 
they might have picked David's brother just because of his height. So they had to go through this monumental fail as a nation to start up right again. Thirdly, we learn our inclination to disdain counsel and spurn wisdom. These people of Israel had Samuel, the consummate prophet. If ever there was a man who heard from God, it was Samuel. And his warning is not tame here. He warns them in no uncertain terms. He will take. But we, the people, wanted our way. Even if it means slavery. And that shows us something. Samuel was saying truthful things. Words, wisdom, truth does not necessarily change minds. We do not often as human beings like it when wisdom or a stern warning challenges our folly. Truth in and of itself is no guarantee of deliverance. We have to love the truth. It's love of the truth that brings about change. It's love of the truth that enables us to obey the truth. In my years of pastoring, I can recall four times that I cautioned couples about getting married. If ever there was uh, an idol that I have had to deal with over my years, it's that. And in those situations, cautioning them, suggesting that at the very least they wait, one took counsel, three got married and are presently divorced. One heeded the counsel and is married for many years to this day. We have an inclination to disdain counsel and spurn wisdom. Brother, sister, if you're here today and you're at risk for loving your folly more than you love the truth, you are setting yourself for up for a hard road ahead. We have to ask God to give us a love for the truth, to, to make us soft-hearted, teachable, not stiff-necked and arrogant. Fourthly, this chapter exposes our dislike of holiness. We don't like to be different. Now, I'm going to take the word holy, which it means different, because we would never, oh, I don't want to be holy. No one would say that, but... When we examine ourselves, right, we want to fit in with the world. We care too much about how we look to the world. I hear it all the time. Be careful, the world is watching. That's become a a rallying cry. For Israel to be like the nations, that became their passion. They cared the world was watching. They ignored the clear warnings of the prophet. But they were a people who were made holy by God. And we too, as God's people, have been made holy. And holy means different. It means peculiar. It means that we are a peculiar people, but we don't like that. We don't want it. It affects our reputation. So we start to care about our reputation. And we start to look at, well, look, this celebrity said they're a Christian. This celebrity said praise God once. Oh, did you know that Taylor Swift is a Christian? What is it? We, we, we want to be pretty normal. We want the cultural icons on our side. We want to be just like anyone else. We want to be in step with the culture. 
And we let society squeeze us into their mold. We are far too much concerned with being on the right side of history. You hear that? You want to be on the right side of history of this one? Well, listen, it doesn't matter what history says. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Abortion is wrong because it was, is, was, and always will be murder. It takes the life of an image bearer of God. And the people's choice is wrong. It doesn't matter what side of history we fall on on that. Racism, genocide, ethnic cleansing are wrong because it defies God's design for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him. It has nothing to do with being on the right side of history. History is not our standard. God's word is. LGBTQ is wrong because it is a sinful affront of God's design in which he created us male and female. Same-sex marriage is wrong because it violates what God created as good, beautifully good, and morally good. And we cannot participate in that. Fornication is wrong because it violates the law of God to keep sex within marriage. And statistics don't matter, and history doesn't matter, and polls don't matter. These are inviolable right and wrong. It doesn't matter what histories, historians tell us we're on the right or wrong side. God said, you shall be different, because I am different. And it's that very difference, brothers and sisters, that ironically is the very greatest potential that we have to make a difference in this world. Brethren, ought we not have a different definition of what right and wrong than the world? Ought we not have a different definition of success or what is valued in this world? Ought we not stand out in a wicked and perverse generation by what we value, by what we enjoy? Ought we not have a passion for worship over entertainment? Ought we not enjoy God instead of the worldly pleasures and treasures? What good is our faith if it makes us no different from the world? We need to stand out. Not like self-righteous, pompous jerks, but pure people. Pure people who are concerned with a, a whole set of very different things than that which consumes those around us. And then lastly, the text reveals to us our attraction to tyranny. We want a king. Human beings are enamored with tyranny. Even those who say they hate tyranny ironically embrace tyrants or become tyrants when they're placed in those positions. It's like we enjoy being slaves. We, we gravitate toward tyrants. We just love to be told what to do. It's comforting for us to be told what to do. We don't know how to handle freedom. Even in America, even in a, we, we have a choice in America, and we choose tyrants. Just like the people of Israel, they're in this anarchy. Remember the book of Judges all that time, they're in anarchy. Everyone's doing right, what's in their own eyes. And, and, and all of a sudden, what happens? The people are now set up. We need order in this world. We need, uh, we need a king. We need a tyrant. And he will take, he will take, he will take. Likewise, this nation and this world are ripe for such a tyrant. 
people prefer to handcuff themselves under tyrannic rule. And they will look for the strong, the tall, the alpha to follow. And their arrogance and their pride will ironically be what attracts the people to them. Look, this is how every antichrist rises to power. You go back to the Old Testament, Haman, or in history, Nero, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler. They all share the qualities that, that Samuel warned about the king. Samuel warned the very, they have the very same qualities they will take. I believe that in the church, this is one of the reasons why unqualified men rise into leadership in churches and in the Christian community. As supposed free thinkers consider the truly good shepherds of God to be weak. When people take advantage of the freedoms of such leadership that, that a good shepherd gives, others come along and say, no, that's wrong, and they clamp down and they stomp out the rebellion by laws and rules and heavy-handed leadership, and the people love it because it resembles order. Until one day they wake up and they realize, I'm a slave in this environment. Jesus said in Matthew 20, and I'll close with this. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Brethren, may Jesus be our example of those who are called to leadership. When the disciples were arguing about the kingdom, Jesus calls the little child. He says, if you want to be great, humble yourself like this. The greatest among you shall be your servant. How opposite is that than the world? The world says, give me the man with authority. Give me the charismatic, funny, charming person with guts. Give me the edgy, risque, powerful guy. I want him to lead us. And so the people's choice is Saul. This is what Saul was. A bad shepherd, as we're going to see right out, right out of the gate next week or two, in two weeks. A bad shepherd. First Samuel 8 is a mirror to our souls. Beyond the error of idolatry in Israel, it reveals how we misplace our trust in physical things, fail to learn our lesson without being chastised, ashamed to be different, Resistant to sound advice and how much we exalt human beings who we consider strong. It reveals our sin. May God have mercy and grant repentance.